I, I've never really uh, been into superhero movies, uh, but we may have to head to the theater for this one. It looks intense. I realized it was kind of violent. Sorry about that. But that's the story of Samson. So we're going to jump in. Uh, before you go to see the movie, I think it'd be good for, for us to read the story of Samson. It's found in the book of Judges. You might like to turn to chapter 13. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation if you like to dial, dial that up in your, in your Bible apps. If we could get some light, um, overhead light, because we're going to read a lot today. So um, I don't know about you, but when I think of Samson, I can't help be, uh, be reminded of that song by the plain white tees. You know, the, it goes, hey there, Delilah, what's it like in New York City? I'm a thousand miles away, but girl, tonight you look so pretty. Yes, you do. <laughs> Maybe, maybe not, but in any case, you're not going to be able to get that tune out of your ear for the next few days, so you're welcome. <laughs> Samson. I never really understood Samson, why he was considered a hero in the Bible. I mean, Samson, if you're familiar with him, he, he's awful. He's like an anti-hero. He, he's like bizarro Superman. He's like that baseball player or maybe a musician you idolized who you found out was really a jerk, like Ty Cobb, racist, but all-time hit, hits leader, or maybe the womanizer John Mayer. His guitar tone alone can tempt you to overlook his depravity, but like them, Samson is gifted almost supernaturally, yet he is highly flawed but why was Samson so revered in Scripture? Why was he viewed as a hero when he had the discretion of an NBA player? <laughs> Hopefully we can shed some light on this incongruity as we go. But we'll need the Holy Spirit. One of his jobs is to reveal this truth of Scripture to us. So let's pray. Lord God, thank you for giving us the Bible. For, uh, thank you that through reading it, we can, learn, uh, we can learn so much about you. We can learn to love you more. And very often we are, see ourselves uh, in the Bible too. It's like a mirror that helps us to see who we really are. We ask that you would send your spirit to help us understand your word and to help us grow. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen. So Samson's story reads like a four-act play, so we're going to read it uh, that way. Uh, allow me to set the stage, though. After Moses and then Joshua, Israel would be led by uh, various judges. Now, these judges were not like the black-robed uh, judges that we would picture today. Uh, many of them were valiant warriors. Some were effective and some were not. Uh, the people that they led, the people as a, as a whole, would lose all conviction to follow God, though. And they would compromise at just about every opportunity. Although that was pretty much the same as it was under Moses' charge, so maybe it wasn't the leader. Well, he, uh, Samson, though, you see, this story of Samson is a snapshot of the story of the people, he and they would sell out to the values of the world, but God would harness Samson's self-indulgence for his own purposes. And then a string of consequences would bring about God's long-term judgment. So that's what we're going to look at today. Let's start in chapter 13, verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, so the Lord handed them over to the Philistines who oppressed them for 40 years. Uh, 
In those days, a man named Manoah from the tribe of Dan lived in the town of Zorah. His wife was unable to become pregnant, and they had no children. The angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah's wife and said, Even though you've been unable to have children, you will soon become pregnant and give birth to a son. So be careful. You must not drink wine or any other alcoholic drink, nor eat any forbidden food. You will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and his hair must never be cut. For he will be dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. He will begin to rescue Israel from the Philistines. So here's a familiar situation, a husband and a wife unable to have a child. Who could blame you for thinking you may have accidentally turned to Luke chapter 2? Here, as in there, an angel appears and tells them that things are about to change. They'll have a son who is to be set apart as a Nazarite. Well, what's a Nazarite? If you were to look in Numbers chapter 6, you would see that someone who took a Nazarite vow would be separate to the Lord. Usually, this was a temporary vow. It involved um, not drinking wine or alcoholic drinks, no vinegar from wine, uh, no grape juice, no grapes at all, really, not even raisins. Um, Never were they to cut their hair. They were not to go near a dead body. The idea was, according to pastor and author Michael Wilcock, it was to say no, a definite no, to certain perfectly natural things in order to show how definite was the yes to something more important, dedication to God. Well, we do this today often when we fast or when we choose to abstain from something. Now, a Nazarite vow wouldn't seem to be too difficult in our day, but it would have been very difficult in their place and time. Grapes were very common. It'd be like trying to go gluten-free or fasting from corn and soybean. Well, dead bodies? I mean, I can't say I've run across too many dead bodies myself, but it wasn't that unlikely in Samson's time to go about your normal day and happen upon a corpse of some sort. Well, as we've seen before, God promises the birth of a son to most unlikely people. And there's a lot that happens here in this chapter, but we're going to skip ahead just for time. You might go back and read it. Skip over to 24. When her son was born, she named him Samson. And the Lord blessed him and he grew up, as he grew up. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he lived in Mahanadan, which is located between the towns of Zorah and Eshtal. Samson is to be their next savior, and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him. But Samson's actions have little to do with his calling to be judge and savior. Instead, his own desires and, and his impulses will dictate his actions. Have I mentioned before that this is going to be a little bit like a mirror? Okay. Let's move to uh, the next chapter, 14. One day, when Samson was in Timnah, one of the Philistine women caught his eye. When he returned home, he told his father and mother, a young Philistine woman in Timnah caught my eye. I want to marry her. Get her for me. His father and mother objected, isn't there even one woman in our tribe or among all the Israelites you could marry? They asked, why must you go to the pagan Philistines to find a wife? But Samson told his father, get her for me. She looks good to me. Little Neanderthalish. I, I, I gave him that tone. I don't know why, but. Um, 
It might be fitting. Uh, Understand, though, that the Jewish people were supposed to marry only within the Jewish faith, just as we would expect a Christ follower, and are actually told in Scripture, that a Christ follower should only marry another Christ follower. But here, Samson doesn't even care that this Philistine woman worships the false god Dagon. What's his one qualifier? Well, as with Samson, he seems to be concerned with merely outward appearances. Verse 4. His father and mother didn't realize the Lord was at work in this, creating an opportunity to work against the Philistines who ruled over Israel at that time. We'll talk more about that. As Samson and his parents were going down to Timnah, a young lion suddenly attacked Samson near the vineyards of Timnah. And at that moment, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, and he ripped the lion's jaws apart with his bare hands. He did it as easily as it were, as if it were a young goat. But he didn't tell his father or mother about it. When Samson arrived in Timnah, he talked with the woman and was very pleased with her. Well, at least Samson, you know, checks out her personality, see what she's like. Well, notice where the young lion attacks. Did you see it? Near the vineyards of Timnah. What, we should ask, was Samson doing near vineyards? Hmm. Verse 8. Later, when he returned to Timnah for the wedding, he turned off the path to look at the carcass of the lion. I guess he was (laughs) rather proud. And he found that a swarm of bees had made some honey in the carcass. He scooped some of the honey into his hands and ate it along the way. He also gave some to his father and mother, and they ate it. But he didn't tell them he had taken the honey from the carcass of the lion. So Samson is hanging out near vineyards, and now he's reaching into a carcass for some honey. Recall that chapter, Numbers chapter 6 says a Nazarite should touch nothing un clean. No wonder he doesn't tell his parents where it comes from. Uh, we're going to skip over the part where Samson throws himself a bachelor party. Uh, we, can, we can surmise that it's hardly a virtuous affair. At the party, Samson puts forth a riddle and he, and he promises some sweet duds if they can solve it. But they're having trouble figuring it out. And Samson would seem, if even briefly, to possess brains to go with his brawn. But the guests, and they're all Philistines, which might tell us something about Samson's inability to make friends among his own people. Well, the guests implore or threaten, uh, more like it, they threaten Samson's soon-to-be wife into coaxing the answer out of him. Let's pick it up at 16. So Samson's wife came to him in tears and said, you don't love me, you hate me. You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. I haven't even given the answer to my father or mother, he replied. Why should I tell you? This is going to work out great, isn't it, this relationship? (laughs) So she cried whenever she was with them and kept it up for the rest of the celebration. At last, on the seventh day, he told her the answer because she was tormenting him with her nagging. Then she explained the riddle to the young men. So before sunset of the seventh day, the men of the town came to Samson with their answer, what is sweeter than honey, what is stronger than a lion? Samson replied, 
If you hadn't plowed with my heifer, you wouldn't have solved my riddle. Hold on, did he just call his wife a heifer? Well, in any case, since they, they solved the riddle, Samson must deliver. 19. Then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. He went down to the town of Ashkelon, killed 30 men, took their belongings, and gave their clothing to the men who had solved his riddle. But Samson was furious about what had happened, and he went back home to live with his father and mother. So his wife was given in marriage to the man who had been Samson's best man at the wedding. Probably because he called her a cow, I would imagine. Well, a few things uh, before we move to the next chapter. First, there is plenty of ignorance to go around. The parents, they're clueless. They don't know what's going on. They don't, they don't know that the, the son's infatuation is part of God's plan. We saw that in 14 verse 4. The Lord was at work in this. And the parents don't know about Samson killing a lion. The parents don't know the source of the, the fresh honey. The Philistines were mystified regarding the riddle, and, the, and certainly the men of Ashkelon didn't know what hit them. Second, we, we're starting to see God's judgment here. You see, Samson's, uh, his fraternizing with the enemy expresses in one individual. It expresses in one individual what the attitude of the nation at large had become. The tribes of Canaan, you see, including the Philistines, were still enemies of Israel. So God uses Samson's weakness to bring about a relationship with this irresistible woman. And in the process, God gives Samson supernatural strength and the first opportunities to use it. So notice this. With the lion, Samson discovers the gift. And with Ashkelon, he finds its purpose. So with the lion, he discovers the gift. With the slaughter of Ashkelon, he sees its purpose, although he doesn't know it yet. We're starting to see it. So God is the judge. He's establishing how far Israel has sold out to the Philistines, and he's deciding what to do. God is, we see, masterminding the plot's move toward its climax. Let's go to 15. Later on, during the wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat as a present to his wife. I guess maybe to make up for the cow comment. (laughs) He said, I'm going into my wife's room to sleep with her, but her father wouldn't let him. I truly thought you must hate her, her father explained, so I gave her in marriage to your best man. But look, her younger sister is even more beautiful than she is. Marry her instead. You know, uh, Jerry Seinfeld uh, jokes that the tuxedo is a, is a wedding safety device. It's created by women because they know that, that men are undependable. So in case the groom chickens out, everybody just takes one step over. <laughs> she marries the next guy. That's kind of what we have in this situation, isn't it? It kind of fits. Well, verse 3. Samson said, This time I cannot be blamed for everything I'm going to do to you Philistines. You see, it's the Lord's resolve to provoke a confrontation between the Israelites and the Philistines. There's an escalation of of conflict, sort of like um, Trump and Kim Jong-un or North Korea. Doesn't it kind of feel that way? There's this back and forth. 
I'm not sure which one of them is Samson. (laughs) Maybe both, I don't know. Well, here Samson flies into a rage and he does some crazy stuff. He's killing foxes and burning vineyards and groves. The Philistines then counter by by killing his father-in-law, which uh, probably wouldn't have bothered him all that much. But then they killed his wife or whoever's wife she is. So we see then in verse 7, because you did this, Samson vowed, I won't rest until I take my revenge on you. So he attacked the Philistines with great fury and killed many of them. Then he went to live in a cave in the rock of Edom. Then it says the Philistines retaliated by setting up camp in Judah and spreading out near the town of Lehi. The men of Judah asked the Philistines, why are you attacking us? The Philistines replied, we've come to capture Samson. We've come to pay him back for what he did to us. So 3,000 men of Judah, 3,000 men of Judah went down to get Samson at the cave in the rock of Edom. They said to Samson, don't you realize the Philistines rule over us? What are you doing to us? But Samson replied, I only did to them what they did to me. But the men of Judah told him, we have come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. All right, Samson said, but promise that you won't kill me yourselves. We will only tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines, they replied. We won't kill you. So they tied him up with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. This three-way exchange here, uh, this exchange between Samson and the men of Judah and the Philistine raiders is so revealing. The Israelites seem perplexed that, that that there should even be any kind of conflict It's like they think they should just exist harmoniously, even though God had told them otherwise. And and notice, this is the tribe of Judah. These were the warriors. That's the reference in the song. Our God is the lion of Judah, roaring with power, fighting our battles. And And they're like, why are you stirring up all this trouble, Samson? Judah here is anxious to live and let live. They would rather bind and betray their Savior than have him upset the balance of things. Maybe this sounds familiar. If you would, look over in John's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 47. Then the leading priests and the Pharisees called the high council together. What are we going to do? They asked each other. This man, referring to Jesus... This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. If we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him. Then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. Caiaphas, who was high priest at the time, said, You don't know what you're talking about. You don't realize that it's better for you that one man should die. It's better for you that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. Hmm. Let's continue. Back to Judges 15, verse 14. As Samson arrived at Lehi, the Philistines came shouting in triumph. But the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Samson, and he snapped the ropes on his arms as if they were burnt strands of flax, and they fell from his wrists. Then he found the jawbone of a recently killed donkey. He picked it up and killed 1,000 Philistines 
with it. Here is the paradox of Samson. He is now obviously acting as the one God will save Israel through, yet simultaneously, he is clearly identified with Israel's sin as with God's salvation. Notice Samson's makeshift weapon. Did you see it? The jawbone taken from a fresh carcass. This clearly conflicted with his Nazarite vow. And this was the attitude of the people. Wilcock again, look. They were supposed to be devoted to the Lord, but they had reached the stage where so far from wanting to destroy the wicked ways of Canaan, they would not even distance themselves from these forbidden things. So the Israelites see in Samson the power of God at work for salvation. But God sees in Samson the sin of Israel at work for destruction. Alcock points out that in the book of Judges, this is about the closest that we get to a Christ figure, a Messiah, a Savior. But Samson is also a walking disaster. Let's look at the next scene. A refreshing one in this story. Speaking of which, hmm. verse 18. Samson was now very thirsty, and he cried out to the Lord, You have accomplished this great victory by the strength of your servant. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of these pagans? So God caused water to gush out of a hollow in the ground at Lehi. And Samson was revived as he drank. Then he named that place the spring of the one who cried out. And it is still in Lehi to this day. It's interesting, though, that he would call it the spring of the one who cried out. He's kind of focused on himself there, do you think? Well, Samson judged Israel for 20 years during the period when the Philistines dominated the land. This vignette is remarkably different than the rest of the story to this point. Lehi left Samson gasping in desperation. This last verse kind of reads like an epitaph, but it's not the end of the story. It doesn't end here. So, turn the page. The ultimate scene, the famous one, is almost set. God is carrying his plan forward. Israel's anxious not to have the status quo challenged. The Philistines are increasingly provoked. Indifferent, Samson is, uh, he's casually doing his own thing. Chapter 16. One day, Samson went to the Philistine town of Gaza. Not sure why he'd think he'd be welcome there. And he spent the night with, what do you know, another woman. Well, word soon came, word soon spread that Samson was there. So the men of Gaza gathered together, and they waited all night at the town gates. They kept quiet during the night, saying to themselves, When the light of morning comes, we will kill him. But Samson stayed in bed only until midnight. Then he got up, took hold of the doors of the town gate, including the two posts, and lifted them up, bar and all. He put them on his shoulders and carried them all the way to the top of the hill across from Hebron. There's a number of things going on there, isn't there? Carrying kind of a crossbeam all the way up to a hill. 
But keep in mind here with Samson, when he isn't saving Israel, he's being Israel. And we are all Samson in some way or other, relishing the wrong thing in the wrong place. But this insignificant piece of self-indulgence, it would seem insignificant, this scene is heavy with foreshadow. He can't resist a beautiful, though morally deficient woman. He realizes enemies, uh, they're lying in wait. And then he kind of makes sport of them, right? I mean, he, the scene is almost comical. Imagine the next day, the men of Gaza, who apparently had been sleeping, uh, they, they have to assemble a team to go retrieve their gates from a nearby hill. They're like, oh, foiled again. But sometime later, as we'll see, there will be another woman with far-reaching intentions. Verse 4, sometime later. After Samson fell in love with a woman named Delilah, who lived in the valley of Sorek, the rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, Entice Samson to tell you what makes him so strong and how he can be overpowered and tied up securely. Then each of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me what makes you so strong and what, it is, and what would take you tie up securely. Samson replied, if I were tied up with seven new bowstrings that have not yet been dried, I would become as weak as anyone else. So the Philistine rulers brought Delilah seven new bowstrings, and she tied Samson up with them. She had hidden some men in one of the inner rooms of her house. And then she cried out, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. But Samson snapped the bowstrings as a piece of string snaps when it is burned by a fire. So the secret of his strength was not yet discovered. A tragic infatuation. Delilah. Oh, Delilah. Beautiful. No one can look as good as you. Still there, isn't it? Beautiful but treacherous. Samson, he is strong. Oh, but he's so weak. And perhaps he has a faulty memory. Here is a study in dramatic irony. Neither the Philistines nor Delilah, well, they don't know why Samson has such strength or how he may be deprived of it. Samson, he doesn't know that his latest girlfriend is willing to betray him for money. Huh, betray him for money. Well, you'd think that he would recall Samson would, that his wife, remember that short-lived relationship, how she succeeded in, in, in getting a secret out of him and then used it against him. Well, the scene with Delilah here plays out a couple more times, like summer reruns, but let's pick it up, um, let's see, down in 15. Then Delilah pouted. How can you tell me I love you when you don't share your secrets with me? You've made fun of me three times now and you still haven't told me what makes you strong. She tormented him with her nagging day after day until he was sick to death of it. Finally, Samson shared his secret with her. And you're watching the movie and you're like, no, don't, don't, don't tell it. He says, my hair has never been cut for I was dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as anyone else. Delilah realized he had finally told her the truth. So she sent for the Philistine rulers. Come back one more time, she said, for he has finally told me his secret. 
So the Philistine rulers, obviously desperate because you know, they've been duped a few times here too. The Philistine rulers returned with money in their hands. Delilah lulled Samson to sleep with his head in her lap. And then she called in a man to shave off the seven locks of his hair. In this way, she began to bring him down. And his strength left him. Then she cried out, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. When he woke up, he thought, I will do as before and shake myself free. But he didn't realize the Lord had left him. So the Philistines captured and gouged out Samson's eyes. They took him to Gaza, where he was bound with bronze chains and forced to grind grain in the prison. Samson becomes a prisoner. The 17th century poet John Milton wrote of Samson, eyeless in Gaza at the mill with slaves. It is difficult to avoid the implications of Samson representing Israel. Their corporate sins were focused in this individual. Alcock again, he says, Israel's dubious relationships with a seductive neighboring community were rephrased as one man's dubious relationships relations with a seductive girl down the road. And in becoming personal, in becoming personal, the lesson became universal and unavoidable. Samson is a slave to the Philistines, just as he's been a slave to sin all along. But that's not the end of the story, is it? It's right there in the conjunctive verse 22. But before long, his hair began to grow back. The final irony concerns what the Philistines don't know. They assume that, that, that there was no magical connection between his strength and the length of his hair. By the one shearing, the vow had been broken, right? Or had it? I mean, he'd been breaking the vow all along with the the carcass and, and the vineyards and all that. So God left him. Or had he? Let's read the rest without interruption. 23. The Philistine rulers held a great festival, offering sacrifices and praising their god, Dagon. They said, our God has given us victory over our enemy, Samson. When the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy to us. The one who killed so many of us is now in our power. Half drunk by now, the people demanded, Bring out Samson so he can amuse us. So he was brought from the prison to amuse them. They had him stand between the pillars supporting the roof. Samson said to the young servant who was leading him by the hand, Place my hands against the pillars that hold up the temple. I want to rest against them. Now the temple was completely filled with people. All the Philistine rulers were there, and there were about 3,000 men and women on the roof who were watching as Samson amused them. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me again. O God, please strengthen me just one more time. With one blow, let me pay back the Philistines for the loss of my two eyes. Then Samson put his hands on the two center pillars that held up the temple. 
Pushing against them with both hands, he prayed, let me die with the Philistines. And the temple crashed down on the Philistine rulers and all the people. So he killed more people when he died than he had during his entire lifetime. Later, his brothers and other relatives went down to get his body. They took him back home and buried him between Zorah and Eshtal, where his father Manoah was buried. Samson had judged Israel for 20 years. No, God had not left Samson, and he doesn't leave us. You see, God held to his promise, we see in 13.7, that Samson would be a Nazarite to the day of his death. The apparent abandonment had only been temporary, and we see that grace abounds to the chief of sinners. Second Timothy 3 says, if we are faithless, God remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The final twist involves the Philistines having been given divine insight into this plan. They said, our God has delivered our enemy to us. But they attributed it to the wrong God. It wasn't Dagon who gift-wrapped Samson to them, but Jehovah. Just as Jesus said, no one takes my life, but I freely give it. Here, Jehovah turns the tables on the Philistines and it points to the gospel narrative. The Savior in his death destroys his enemies and the enemies of his people So as I invite the team to return to the stage to lead us, uh, allow me to point out that Samson uh, is a savior with more than a passing resemblance to Christ. He is also the sinner reflecting the face of Israel and our face to God. He is called by grace. He is bound by a vow. He's repeatedly empowered and greatly gifted. Yet he's faithless, he's self-indulgent, and he is too ready to mingle with the enemy. Maybe that sounds like you. Again, of Samson, John Milton wrote, O mirror, our fickle state. Samson led as a judge, but God is the judge. Before Samson's birth, God prepared everything. During Samson's life, God was engineering everything. And at Samson's death, the heathen God was defeated and the God of Israel triumphed. In this way, Samson's birth and his death are a reflection, however dim, of that other birth and death centuries later, the Messiah, Jesus the one who would save us, not from human enemies, but from the power of sin, the power of death. Look at 2 Corinthians. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us. He became our offering for sin so that we could be made right with God, so that we could have life. 
I'd like to look at one last passage. We're actually gonna sort of pray through it as we close. Colossians 2 says, you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Let's pray. God, we were dead in our sin. Our sinful nature had not yet been cut away. But you made us alive with Christ. You forgave all of our sins. You canceled the record of the charges against us, took it away, nailing it to the cross. You carried that cross beam up to the hill. And what looked like certain defeat was a turning of the tables. You disarmed the spiritual forces of darkness and evil. You took away death's power and the consequence for sin by taking it yourself. And you shamed them publicly just as you did with Samson in that temple. You made a mockery of what they thought was a defeat. Thank you for Jesus, our true Savior. Thank you for the story of Samson who reminds us that we too often mingle with the world, that we allow our flesh to dictate our decisions, that we allow our old sinful nature to be in control. Help us to renew our thoughts and attitudes, to take on our new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Thank you, Jesus. We worship you as our supreme hero for defeating the powers of sin in the grave. Amen.